0: from Sydney, this is General Ike, building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Dr. Adrian Heathcote. Dr. Heathcote is a philosopher specialising in philosophy of physics and philosophy of mathematics. He taught for over 20 years at the University of Sydney. Dr. Heathcote, pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. I remember very well, very fondly, uh, the first time I encountered you, I was a freshman, or as they say here in Australia, a first year. And um, you were teaching the uh, philosophy courses on epistemology and metaphysics. And the way that you got from a standing start straight into uh, really deep and intense philosophy with big implications. Uh, I found really moving, and I've continued to find really moving. Do you, have you have you always been a natural communicator, or was that something that came to you with time?
1: You know, I didn't I didn't know that it was something that I could do uh, until I stepped in front of a, an audience uh, for. I think it was a summer school course back when I was doing my PhD, and suddenly I. Found that this was something I could do. I had no idea that I could talk fluently in front of a large group of people um, until that point. It was a surprise. Surprise to me. Um, as a surprise to them as well, but, it was a, but a surprise to me. Um, I'd never had any experience doing this before. And yet suddenly I just sort of clicked into it. And it was some, um, and I enjoyed it. Um, and the the people seemed to enjoy it at the time. I think the first course I ever did was a summer school course on paradoxes. And, um, and I had a very, uh, a rival sitting in the audience um, who was sort of, we were doing work on the same PhD subject. And he, was, he was sort of very bitterly um, <laughs> opposed to me and really to anyone horning in on his area. And he was going to be tutoring on this thing as I was lecturing it a humiliating position for him to find himself in. And I was quite astonished that after the first couple of sessions he came to me very warmly, smiling for the first time ever, saying how much he was enjoying these lectures.
0: Really? Hmm. You,
1: you, you talked him around to your side? I, I had no intention of doing that, but it seemed to be the effect.
0: That's fantastic. Hmm. When this was when you were doing your PhD? Yeah. yeah. And before that, were you? did you find yourself... Uh, in a, in a teaching position, like explaining no. things to people, never. no, that wasn't your thing. No. no, I there simply wasn't an opportunity
1: to do that. I, mean, I never had a group of people ar- around who were paying to listen to me, and suddenly I yeah. had. Fair enough. Suddenly, I found that I was uh, swimming.
0: Fair. Well, certainly when when you um, when you were teaching at Sydney University, and I was there, I uh, you, your your stuff had a great impact on me. I still remember very clearly. Um, the opening of one of your lectures, I think word perfect, what you said was um, to begin with, I want to share with you one of the most incredible discoveries in human history. And that is there are numbers that cannot be expressed.
1: Yes, indeed. Yeah. I still find it astonishing. I still find it one of those sort of just those most astonishing moments And I don't know why people are not shouting about it on the television or why it's not being um, crowed about in the street. It's the most incredible thing.
0: Could you give us the the basic outline for the layman here?
1: Well, the basic idea is that if you have a square, which has, um, say, a unit length side, call call it one, so it's a unit length, and you want to know what the length of the diagonal is. Well, it has, by Pythagoras' theorem, it has um, square of one is one plus the square of one is one That makes two. So the square root of, the, of two is the length of um, the diagonal. And the question is, well, what is square root two? What length is that? Uh, initially, for the most part, um, uh, ancient societies understood very well fractions. They understood um, whole numbers. They used these in counting. They use them in in measuring their fields and counting various things. But the idea of asking the question, "What is square root two, may not have occurred. It may not have occurred to anyone before the Egyptians, or may not have occurred to anyone even before the Pythagoreans. But, in any anyway, rate. It occurred to someone around that time and um, the idea was, well, you can actually prove definitively that it can't be a fraction. So it's not a rational number. Now rational numbers, the word rational has several meanings, it comes from ratio, of course, hmm. but it also has this meaning of rationality. What is rational? What is, what is understandable? What is comprehensible? What can one reason about? And the word that they had for these numbers that aren't rational numbers um, was that they were um, unspeakable numbers, unsayable numbers.
0: Wow, unsayable numbers. Yeah,
1: unsayable numbers. That was the word they had. Um, And the, the proof is really simple. The proof is... Um, well one proof in any way is that um, suppose you have um, suppose you were to think that um, square root of 2 was a fraction, let's call it m over n Um, then if you were to square both sides you would get 2 equals the square of m over the square of n, move the uh, denominator n squared over to the other side and you'll get n squared times 2 equals m squared now, work out the factors of, um, of m squared and n squared. Well, the fact, there, are, there is a unique way of breaking down every number into prime factors. It's called the fundamental theorem of arithmetic. Every number can be broken down into a unique set of um, factors, prime factors. So, for example, 10 is simply 2 times 5. And 2 is prime and 5 is two prime. 2 is, Exactly. Okay. So nine is simply three times three, okay. right? So it's a unique set of um, of prime factors for every number and the Greeks knew that Now once you have that then of course once you lay out the factors for m Then the factors for m squared are simply that set laid out twice You've got the factors for m mm-hmm. if you want factors for m squared It's that
0: same set, twice. So let's say m were 9, then it would be 3 by 3, and m squared would be 3 by 3 by 3 by 3. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So now you've got an
1: even number, um, n squared times 2, an even number of factors times 2, because 2 was on the left-hand side, so. Yeah. Okay. Now we've got um, equals m squared. Well, m squared is simply an even number of factors. N squared was an even number of factors. N squared times 2 is an odd number of factors because it's the even number of N squared times 2. 2 is the extra factor. Okay. Ah, right, right. So now we've got an odd number on the left-hand side and we've got an even number on the right-hand side. Impossible.
0: Whoa. Hang on. Don't we have an odd number of numbers that we're multiplying together rather than an odd number itself?
1: We have an odd number of factors. So an odd number of factors can't equal an even number of factors.
0: Wow. Right. Because of the fundamental theorem of arithmetic? Yeah. yeah. It
1: depends on the fundamental theorem of arithmetic, but once you know that, every school child learns it, but they aren't told what it is. They're told that you can break every number down into a unique set of prime factors. They learn how to do that. They learn how to factorize numbers. But they aren't told the basic fact, which is that it's a unique set. That's the fundamental theorem. Now, they aren't told it because I suppose it seems too obvious or it doesn't seem useful. Because the next question is, are there any numbers for which that set is not unique? Mm -hmm. And there are what do you mean? There are complex numbers. Oh, uh, okay. Complex integers. All right. And for them, that the, the decomposition is not unique. Okay. But for ordinary numbers it is unique. That's the fundamental theorem of, of, of arithmetic.
0: It's right. So as in as in there's only one set of, of prime of primes that makes that number. Exactly. Now that,
1: that little proof is works perfectly well for every prime number. So every prime number you can prove that it, the square root of that number can't be equal to a ratio a fraction.
0: How interesting. Yeah. We're using basically the same Using the thing. same proof. So right. suppose you have three, mm-hmm. um,
1: then three can't be equal to a fraction because, again, once you move the denominator onto the left hand side, you would get an odd number of factors equal to an even number of factors, an odd can't equal an even, etc. Cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Right. Okay. Now I get that because and it also
1: would apply to any number which has an odd number of factors, prime factors.
0: Okay. I um, it's an odd so it's very generalizable number. as a proof. Fair. So then the R. Ah, so that's why it doesn't work for like nine because nine has an even number of prime factors. Yes. Okay. But all of this, all but, of this is yeah, basically and nine is a square. Hmm. Nine is a square. Comments, like a square. Right. But all of this basically comes to prove that square root two is 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 not, a, expressible. not an expressible number. Not expressible as a
1: fraction. Not expressible as a real not, as a as a sorry. Not expressible as a fraction. Not expressible as a whole number.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not expressible as a fraction. If all you know as numbers are fractions and whole numbers, then here you've got a number which you can't say what it is. You can say you can pin it down. To say, well, it must be between this number and this number, Mm -hmm. you can get closer and closer to it, but there is no fraction which it would be. So you can approximate to it, but you can't get a fraction which it is, because there is no fraction which it
0: is. Right. And for modern audiences who are used to decimal, of course, a decimal is just a special case of a fraction. So there's...
1: Decimals, uh, unless the decimal has an unending series, unless unless it's an infinite series then yes, the, because once it has a finite length,
0: once the decimal has a finite length, then you can convert it into a fraction easily. Right, it's just, a, it's just the over 10 yeah, exactly. fraction. So well. so here we have this, we have um, it, it, to go back to the original thing, we have this square field, and it's, it's unit, one length by one length, so the diagonal must be square root of 2 length. But square root of 2 isn't a number itself, it's a way to find a number. It's like a... It's, not a. it's a way to.
1: It's a. It's pinning. It's, what it's doing is, is enlarging the idea of number into something else. There's a definite length there. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that. Right. I mean, the diagonal is a definite length of the square. And yet, there is no number which they would have known which it could be. You can get closer to it, but you can't get that fraction. And what does that mean? What are the implications of that? It's an astonishing thing. I mean, what it means is that the is that numbers transcend this ordinary ability that we have to count and to divide things up. Because dividing things up just gives you fractions. Sure, sure. So if you have a whole and you can, and you divide it up and you can, it's a process which you can generalise to give the concept of fractions. And it's, there's no difficulty in that.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, it's
1: a very pragmatic um, aspect. But here you have something that just goes beyond that immediately. There is no such number where you think of number as fractions and whole numbers. It's gone beyond that. Now, now we know what to call those numbers. We know to call them irrational numbers, numbers that can't be expressed as ratios. But the difficulties of them are still Hard to um, overstate. I mean, until the nineteenth century, there were mathematicians who didn't believe there was a number that was square root two. They would just leave leave out those things. What do you mean? Didn't believe it? They didn't believe it. They they just would think that these numbers are not real numbers. Now we think, of course, what what we mean by real number includes is irrational numbers as well. Right. So. For us, r- r- rational numbers and real sorry irrational numbers and real numbers are, well they they are they are accepted, but even as late as the nineteenth century, there were there were mathematicians who didn't.
0: Mm-hmm. De Morgan
1: didn't. Early on,
0: there's there's this um, dispute. I don't know if it's a, it, I don't know how much it's a real dispute versus like a trumped up dispute. But a lot of um, Western philosophy seems to fracture along uh, perceived or real disputes between Plato and Aristotle. And this this one's at the heart of one of them. Yeah, um, uh, because
1: it's not clear whether the the Pythagoreans actually discovered this. There's no claim that they did. What they did was they knew of it. And they they had the secret. They may have learned it from the Egyptians. Plato at one point implies that this was well known to the Egyptians.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now... This, um, Plato makes a lot of this because for him, this sort of the, I- the idea is, which is taken over from the Pythagoreans is the idea that there is a, a cosmos which has aspects to it which go beyond what we can, exp- can experience here on, as it we're on Earth. Our experience is limited um, and partial, and we don't see the, the the full truth of the world. That's the whole moral of the Plato's cave analogy. We don't see the full thing. We're not getting the whole picture, but there is a picture out there to be gotten if only we sort of open ourselves up to it. That's Plato's vision. Now, that is very close to the Pythagorean idea because here you have a, a sort of a... a a revelation that there are these numbers that go beyond the sort of our, our simple ability to count and calculate. And once you get from once you get to these numbers, and they accepted them fully after the Pythagoreans, um, and Plato certainly did, then it gives you a foothold in this I Plato's idea that the cosmos is an interesting and an interesting world which of which we only get a sort of a partial fragment but most of our concepts are approximations to these forms which he thinks exist in the world. So he thinks that that when you see beauty in the world what you're seeing is an approximation to something which is the sort of this form of beauty just as you can approximate an irrational number by, by approximating it with rational numbers, getting closer and closer to rational numbers, pinning it down, as it were, between sandwiching it between two rational numbers. So you can so we get this idea of, of beauty, and somehow the real beauty, Plato and Socrates, well, Socrates as Plato's sort of mouthpiece. Sort of says over and over again that there is something which is um, which goes beyond our earthly experience which we are trying to approximate to. So that's really the the platonic idea. The ideas of beauty and the ideas of goodness The our idea of the world is uh, an approximation to something which is
0: out there more fully. So the idea is something like if, if, if if you see a butterfly and you think, "Oh, that's beautiful," what you mean is, I have a, a an innate concept of what beauty is, mm. and this is a partial match to that.
1: Yes, and the the the, the, re, the that it's an
0: approximation to
1: something which is, which is fuller, and the, the where the butterfly is a sort of a partial approximation to something which is out there, which is fuller. It's a it's a visionary experience, and in the Neo-Pythagorean world, that visionary experience was the, the way it was articulated, the way, it, the way, it, the way it evolved. Yeah. You, you, it became almost, um, in the Roman period, this sort of Neo-Pythagorean view became almost a sort of a, a visionary uh, Gnostic idea where you would um, try to find your way to these higher visions of this sort of enlarged beauty, the enlarged goodness, all of which were taken to be objectively existing realms which were out there. The more they tried to pin this down and to say more about it, the more mystical it got, right. as it isn't really in Plato. There's sort of a very nascent idea of this in Plato. But um, as, he, as it was developed in the next five, six hundred years into the Roman period, into the, the, the first several uh, um, centuries of the um, of the common era, as we call it, mm-hmm. then um, what you have is a sort of articulation of this view in a very much enlarged, mystical realm sense. And, and numbers were playing the, a sort of a similar kind of role that they had played with Plato and with the Pythagoreans.
0: Right. So when Plato is doing it, he... Um, he... Is relying a little more on the geometry to get him to get him there, but he he whereas later later philosophers were moving more into the mystical realm. Yeah, very even so. even for him though, he was a participant in the illusion mysteries, if memory serves. Yes, it's not clear what mysteries um,
1: he certainly. If we we're to take some of the hints um, that uh, his contemporaries like Aristophanes uh, give us then we cons- we ex- we suspect that socrates was part of these sort of mystery cults which were centered on um, dionysus and orpheus and this was a sort of the and the orphic cults may have had uh, some sort of strong similarities to the Aleutian um, uh, mysteries it's not very clear what what the difference between them was, but um, they, but they they probably had sort of a similar cult aspect right. to
0: them. It's it's not very clear. It's not very clear to me what any of it is, but it seems to me like based on the very very brief accounts I've got, is a of, of Plato's participation. Um, it it seems like it's it's go back to Greece, um, go through like a, a, a shamanic ritual and get really high on something.
1: Yeah, and it may be, but the, the, it was all shrouded in uh, mystery and uh, they were forbidden to speak of it. No one gave away, even their enemies didn't give away what the hell was going on with this. So That's pretty remarkable. It is, it is. But the same is true also of the, um, uh, of the Egyptians. I mean, what, what on earth their, their mystery cults were, we, I mean, we really don't know. It's very likely that Pythagoras got quite a bit from Egypt because we know that he that he studied there for quite a few years. Pythagoras studied in Egypt? Yeah, he did. Huh. Hmm. I didn't know that. Before yeah. he went to southern Italy and essentially sort of initiated a sort of philosophical leadership of southern Italy um, with uh, the Pythagoreans as sort of the
0: um, philosopher kings. Fair. This um, this idea uh, that um, this ge- geometric fact that there are numbers that can't be expressed sort of points us to the, um, the broader point that there are things about the universe that are beyond our grasp, or at least beyond the grasp of, of those those things which we normally use to grasp them. It seems like it's echoed a lot in uh, a lot of modern discoveries in physics. Yeah. The more we discover, the more we're like, okay, we are totally unable to.
1: Well, it comes in in a very specific way in, in modern physics. Take take a, a a number line between zero and four. Okay. Now, if you would to try to express what 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 you can do with classical what are called classical resources, so causation plus um, sort of loading things up initially in terms of the, the properties that things have, then there's a certain amount that you can explain. Uh, you, there are certain um, correlations that you can expect to get with classical resources. Now, if you if this if the band is between zero and four, then call that number that you can get with classical resources two. Okay, halfway. <laughs> you can get halfway, essentially. Um, You'll get some correlations you, can't, you absolutely can't capture with um, classical resources, um, other correlations you can.
0: Okay, I'm a bit confused by some of the terminology here. We're talking about the ability of modern tools in physics to, mm, to get a well, full picture.
1: If you think of, uh, if you think of setting up a, uh, two, two particles um, and separating them out from a common source, Okay. Okay. You separate them out and you measure them separately. How much can you? How much correlation can you expect to get? Well, whatever that is, call it four. Call it two. Okay. Okay. So it's halfway in this sort of span. Now, the interesting thing about modern physics is that what it says is what the discovery is that quantum mechanics can do better than classical resources can in giving you correlations between separated systems. So if you have, this is the EPR entanglement. So if you have two particles and you prepare them in a correlated state, so they initially have a sort of a sum total of zero spin, they're half spin particles, you separate them off. You separate them out arbitrarily far. say, so. Then when you measure... If you were to measure the two particles, there's a correlation that you can get between the two particles in terms of the spin that you get on one and the spin that you get on the other. Because if one is, if you measure one along a particular axis and it's spin up, Mm -hmm. then if you if you were to measure the other one along the same axis, it would have to be spin down because there the total spin is zero. Okay, so there are certain things which you can get in in these physical situations i've I've
0: never studied like spin uh, in uh, if you want to
1: ask what spin is then we're going to be here for a long time yeah a long
0: time (laughs) But, but the basic thing i'm getting is there are a couple of particles they're grooving together they have a relationship together where they are you separate them out far apart and you can still learn things about one from the other that's exactly right okay that's exactly right
1: you can learn things about one from the other. So if you measure one along a particular axis and it's spin up, then you know that the other one is spin down along that same axis. Sure. Now you can rotate those axes around in three-dimensional space. And you can get correlations between these two particles, even if you aren't measuring them along the same axis. You'll still get correlations between them because there's a relationship between the two particles. Even when you have rotated the axis um, through a certain number of degrees, will, you will still get... C- correlations can, that are can, that are um, still um, existent, even with if even with the rotation. So you didn't have to have perfect alignment of the axes in order to get correlations. If you rotate the axis slightly, you'll
0: still get a correlation. Okay, so it's the, just that it'll be slightly less perfect. Okay. So okay? if you separate them apart, you move them around a bit, they still can learn stuff about each other. Right. Okay. Right. Now here's the shocker. Uh huh. What,
1: if on this scale between 0 and 4, what do you get as the quantum correlation limit? What's the number that you get? It's higher than 2 because 2 was halfway and we know that we got, with classical resources, we could get a prediction of 2. Right. Okay. Now we've got this gap between 2 and 4. What do you get with quantum mechanics? I'm going to guess three. No. Okay. You get two times square root two. In other words, the difference between quantum mechanics and classical mechanics, the discovery is that it's a factor increase in explanation of correlations of square root two. What?
0: Yes. So the, the difference in how good classical mechanics is compared to quantum mechanics in, in, dis, in describing correlations between particles is itself, that gap, is itself inexpressible? It's an irrational it's number? It's an irrational
1: number, yes. So in other words, the increase... I'm done here. <laughs> this is ridiculous. The increase that you get... in, in In explanatory correlations between separated systems is a factor of square root two.
0: That's
1: bonkers. Yeah, that's absolutely bonkers. Now, one of the the questions which which people are now asking is, why can't you get more than that? Why can't there's a there's a difference, a distance Mm. to go between two times square root two, which is the quantum limit. By the way, it's called the Cyrilson limit, which is which is the limit of quantum mechanics. The Cyrilson limit is two times square root two. Okay. Okay. Now, the difference between two times square root two and four. Why can't you get correlations between that in, in that gap more than quantum mechanics? What, why can't don't you have good enough physics? Yeah. No, well, no, no, no. There is. There. It's thought to be an absolute limit.
0: Oh wow! Really? Yes. So, like you actually. The
1: Cyrilson limit is thought to be a, a limit beyond which you could not possibly go, and there are a whole lot of theories that are current now trying to explain the zero limit. Lots of, lots of attempts, but, but essentially, in your terms, things go bonkers if you try to get beyond 2 times square root 2. Fair. Okay. Now, here's an interesting way of looking at this, this, this little sort of chart we've got now. We've got 0, we've got 2, we've got 2 times square root 2, we've got 4. Okay, mm-hmm. the progress is this. 2 is 2 times square root 2. Yeah. 2 times square root 2 is square root 2 times square root 2 times square root 2 4 is 2 times is sorry is 2 4 is square root 2 times square root 2 times square root 2 times square root 2 in other words square root 2 is square root 2 squared 2 times square root 2 is square root 2 cubed and 4 is square root 2 to the fourth power 2 3 4
0: that's remarkable yeah it actually goes up in the summit it goes up
1: in that neat little Progress.
0: I I feel like this at this point I I'm struggling to keep up and I imagine um this this might be a little beyond the capacity of, of some well of it's a good don't it, have education in, but in it's this, a good
1: it's a good going. reason for people to go out and try and find books uh, that sort of explain this sort of thing they they do exist fair you have any recommendations no I <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I want to ask you about something completely unrelated how old were you when you started riding a motorbike.
1: Oh, God. Um, I think I started, well, I started when I was 18. May have been, may, I may have started illegally at about 17. I think I did. Work maybe on. maybe 16. But when I first started, I was not riding what you could describe as a motorbike. It was like one of those Honda, one well, of those mid, middle sort of Honda scootery type things. Not exactly a scooter, but, but a very sort of low powered motorbike.
0: And were there, were there other people you knew who were riding at the time? Yeah, yeah,
1: because no one could afford cars, so um, we we had this sort of little uh, motorbike gang of um, of uh, university students, um, um, yeah, hell's nerds, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hell's nerds, mm-hmm. yeah. So we, as we got, as we went on, we sort of uh, the motorbike sort of slightly increased in power, um, but we were sort of riding along in. In um, terrorizing um, the, the, the citizens of Adelaide.
0: What were you rebelling against? What you got <laughs> <laughs> in Adelaide? Apparently, not a great deal. No, exactly. <laughs> what do you do? You remember? Do you have a bike that stands out to you as your absolute favorite? Oh, I only had I only had a couple, um, but yeah,
1: the best one was a Honda five hundred. Was a Honda five hundred like? Oh, it was just very smooth, very very smooth, really nice. I would have liked something, you know, more powerful and bigger and all that you know, sort of thing. But you know, once you have a couple of accidents on a motorbike, your nerves begin to go, and um, it's hard to sustain it. You begin to sort of, you begin to sort of check out people in in their in their rearview mirrors to see if they're people you want to ride your motorbike behind, or whether they're going to be jamming on their brakes all of a sudden, whether they're going to do something crazy. Once you start really looking to see everything in the road to see whether it's safe
0: it's time to hang it up Uh, interesting because i i I actually never ridden a motorbike i've always wanted to but the thing that that really got me was um i was talking to someone who said look if you ride a motorbike the issue isn't will you have an accident issue is when will you have your accident that's true and the thing is you know a small
1: you know a, a, a little bumper scrape on a car is a Serious accident on a motorbike. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you can die from from something which you would not even sort of consider in a car. And in places like Sydney, no. The the drivers are absolutely reckless and only concerned about their own safety and themselves. And I wouldn't ride a motorbike in Sydney. You find there's a strong difference between Sydney and other cities. Well, Adelaide had very wide roads. Mm. Um, it, it it was it was sort of planned. Planned city; it had very few hills, like none, um, and uh, and very wide roads. And unless you were in a very a peculiar place, for the most part, you could ride safely um, and avoid cars. Um, and that's just not possible here. So Was it? Did you go on long rides?
0: Did oh yeah, sure.
1: We the, the, all of us. Um, I think there was a there was someone who was doing ophthalmology. We had a. Uh, Someone who, was, uh, someone who was doing um, his degree in maths. Uh, there was me, who was sort of philosopher plus English person at that time. Um, uh, let's see. There were a couple of uh, chemists, I think. And anyway, we would all ride around. And, you, know, you really do sound like hells and nerds. Well, that's what it was, yeah. <laughs> we all rock up to parties, so, you know, so. Rev the engines. Did you really? <laughs> well, it sounds ridiculous if you say revving the engines, but you know, we, we would certainly go to parties, you know, you know, as a group, and just spend a little longer
0: outside on the bike. Yeah, like leaning against them. That's right. Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah. Was, that, was that very popular at the time? What do you mean? Like, like, I, I. It's hard for me to. It's hard for me to tell if it's the sort of thing that um, was. It, it seems cool now. In like looking back, you know, like you watch like a, a James Dean movie or whatever, and you're like, "Wow!" But at the time, if you did that at a party, would people come out and be like, "Whoa! Who are these people?"
1: Yeah. 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 These guys look tough. <laughs> 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 and now. we would be having conversations about you know about Kafka or something. Yeah. Or I'm or, sure. uh, or um, you know the, exactly you know. <sighs> What, what, was the, what was the sort of the content of, you know, uh, theories of topology or something like that? It was it, We were <laughs> standing, standing around the bikes talking about these things.
0: <laughs> God, I'd pay so much to see that. <laughs> were, were any of you tough? Were any of you like... No, no, no. No, no, no. Just a bunch? No. All academic. Okay, cool. And do you remember what sort of music was big at the time? Oh.
1: Um... This was sort of early seventies, so um, the thing I think I think my favourite thing at the time was um, an album by David Crosby called "If You Could Only Remember My Name," which was um, sort of an early, well, an early um, yes, an an early sort of uh, concept
0: album. I think. Mm-hmm. Did did you find at the time or since then that you were listening to music? So for me, I, I, I find there's some music that I listen to and I just enjoy it and that's it. And there's some music that just shakes me. It just like rattles my bones a bit and flips things upside down. Yeah, sure. Yeah.
1: But I mean, I, most of us at the time, I think, and I, it, was probably, it was sort of a, the beginning of a rebellion. But after a certain point, I found popular music just completely appalling and anathema. And I couldn't listen to it anymore. So I started listening to a lot of Shostakovich string quartets. Dimitri? Yes, yes. Not, I mean, I listened to the, uh, to the 5 and 10 symphony all the time. But, I, but the thing which was on the turntable most was uh, the string quartets. I used to play them a lot. Those, the Bartok string quartets, um, Webern, um, anything I could get my hands on that was sort of a bit avant-garde, somehow it just resonated with me. I liked it a lot more than the sort of the smooth pack <laughs> that began to come in in the 70s because it, like, um, it was almost like a sudden change of weather. Like one day there was a certain type of music which was good and around. The next day there were, it was disco and it was as sudden as that. Hmm. It, was a, it was a strange, weird, inexpressible time. Um, but it went from one thing to another thing very quickly. And it never changed back again.
0: Never since the 60s?
1: No, it was kind of... There was there was like a, a tail end of the 60s that protracted out into the 70s. And um, the music was still listenable and good. There were still good things that you could find um, and that, that were easily liked. And then suddenly it went into increasingly sort of bizarre and silly things. And then at some point it just flipped into disco. I remember sitting outside the house. I used to sit outside of the porch a lot. I was sitting outside the house and all of a sudden I saw a couple, uh, the people across the street who were just, you know, a couple of uh, girls and a guy. And suddenly the the girls were, were sort of wearing disco, 70s disco dresses with big flowers in their hair on one side and the hair sort of swept over to one side. And that 70s style which would last for probably another 8 to 10 years um, just suddenly came in it was like it was like the weather has changed the Scirocco has come in now this is what we have to look at this is what this is what people are going to be looking like it was a very sudden thing do you, remember, do, you do you have any ideas why it happened oh it music changed in america and those and those uh, all of those tendencies just flooded in to the country that was even before Saturday Night fever became a, a big hit, but when it did I mean, then everything changed you know people people who you wouldn't have thought would change and sort of go along with it. Um, you would find sort of wearing bizarre disco clothes and, you know, i was I was I, I couldn't get it along I couldn't get along with it at all, so I just dropped out of it completely I just started listening to
0: um, classical. Twentieth-century classical music. Do you have a, a Shostakovich track that you'd recommend as a as a good track for? The oh, kids? I used to really like the Eighth String Quartet. I'm writing this down. Shostakovich, Eighth String.
1: I think the Eighth is one of the great ones. He used to alternate um, so that there, he would do one for himself and one for Stalin. To keep him happy, really. Hmm. He did the with the symphonies as well. Um, so you, you kind of pick the ones that you want out of the Stalin um, flattering ones and the ones that he wanted to do for himself. He had to keep himself alive, and he had to keep Stalin happy. So he um, he sort of gave Stalin one, and then he would do something for himself. And are they like markedly different sorts of piece? Yes, there's sort of there's a sort of chirpy Slavic. Um, sort of pro-proletariat sort of sound where the proletariat are being sort of goose-stepped along um, with the um, uh, uh, with the Stalin making Stalin happy ones
0: Really? Mm. Uh, uh, so are there actually is there actually really good music there or not not so much? Uh, it's okay
1: um, but every now and again Strustegovic would do things that were just just ridiculous. Um, uh, his, he did um, he did sort of t- piss takes of America and piss takes of other composers like Bartok. And the, the, the sort of the rivalry of Soviet music versus the music of the other, the rest of the world was part of his sort of what he was doing because this would make Stalin happy because the Soviet Union was, was the best, so. But the Soviet Union for Stalin was only the best if it was making the kind of music that Stalin wanted. He right. didn't want avant-garde music, he wanted um, things that the, um, the peasants could dance to around the hayricks.
0: <laughs> Oi, oh, different time. Mm. It's, it's interesting how um, the, the Cold War rivalry seems to have seeped into like, every single aspect of culture. Yeah, and to this,
1: the horrible thing is, that it's still going on. Still going on. Well, the Cold War rivalry between Russia and America—it's still, it's still being perpetuated. How do you see that? Oh, I think that the um, the inability of the Americans to you know even accept gracefully the uh, help that they could have gotten from the Russians has been sort of just pathetic and terrible. The, the fact that they, for example, that they, the FBI didn't take notice of um, of Russian intelligence when Russian intelligence passed on um, the fact that the uh, Boston bombers were trained in um, uh, in um, in the Caucasus before the bombing. Yeah. The, yes. It's the Sanev's. They were actually trained. They went to Russia and they. Got their training in the Caucasus, and Russian intelligence passed that on to Russian Russian intelligence. Passed that fact on that they had been radicalised, which is a kind of a nonsense phrase, because what it really means is they have sought out radicals and they have got training. They haven't been radicalised; they are radicals. Right. They had they had gotten their training um, in the Caucasus, and uh, they were then when they went back to the United States, they fully intended to. Commit some bomb. Um, and Russian
0: intelligence warned the Americans about it, and the Americans did nothing. Is that is that unusual? I feel like there's a lot of briefs from foreign military intelligences that the Americans get across their desk and they say, Oh yeah, we'll take a look at that later and they never do. It. Yeah, that's that seems right. <laughs> but I, I'm interested in this in this topic because like if you want to model the so people say the Cold War ended, the war came down, that's it. But the what the, the guy who's currently running Russia is the former head of KGB. former head yeah of the KGB mm-hmm. like what what is that in what in what sense like do you think the war's over for him no no I don't think it is I mean I don't think anyone thinks that Putin is a nice guy um, i
1: uh, I doubt if anyone believes that but at the same time um, it would have been possible for the Americans and the Russians to have at least had um, protocols for how they could Relate to one another, and how they could trust one another, and how they could pass intelligence between each other, and that would have been good for everyone. And you think that ball was dropped? Um, I yeah, I think it, I think it was dropped, and I think I think it's now uh, we're now further away than ever from having anything like that kind of cooperation.
0: Really. Mm. Is it is is there a, a place for that in like the sort of zero sum world politics theory that? seems to predominate over this some matters. The point is it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have cost the FBI anything
1: to have taken that seriously. Right. All they needed to do was keep an eye on the Saneas. And if they had done that, um, the whole thing could have been avoided. But they didn't do it. Instead, they just let it slide. They treated the Russian intelligence suggestion as though it was sort of just some sort of ignorable noise. And
0: it wasn't. Why did the Russians pass it on? Do you know? Why wouldn't they? Was an act of goodwill. Yeah, that's why. But I think that cynicism
1: about you know why would why would they not? I mean, in this case, it's clearly it's clearly an absurd thing to think. They, there's no reason why if they
0: once they pass it on, there's no reason not to take it seriously. Do you, I mean are foreign intelligence agencies in the habit of act of goodwill, especially the Russian intelligence agency? Well, I'm sure they're not now. Do you think they were then?
1: Well, I think they were then. but They were right. I guess they yeah, were. Right. They, 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 what they passed on was correct.
0: Fair. Is it, is it... Do you feel like it was a good thing for um, sort of cultural development that everything from like music to chess to the Olympics were like a battleground for, for Russian versus American pride?
1: Well, it did some things that were... That were good, but um, I mean, it had some 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 very bizarre um, side effects. For example, um, the Americans so wanted to best Russia that they um, actively supported and financed abstract art. So, so after the Second World War, um, when Paris, in a sense, was trying to recover, um, the CIA actively encouraged and and supported and paid for um, uh, the development of abstract art principally in New York
0: what? how does that ha-
1: what yeah because it because it once America became the center of abstract art or the center of the art world as it did uh, after 1945 America could claim to, to have this enormous cultural superiority over Russia. Here is Russia, you know, um, it's censoring its writers, it's sending them to gulags. There is no Russian painting that is a painting of peasants. Russian had great abstract art at the beginning of the 20th century and they, Malevich and all the rest of them, uh, they just ignored it. They they didn't treat it well uh, because it wasn't what suited them as sort of propaganda art. They wanted propaganda art and so... Um they lost the as it were, the, the art cultural war. they had all of their the great novelists of um, of 20th century Russia were incredibly badly treated, um, Bulgakov being the the leader of of those who were badly treated master and margaritas, you know one of the great novels of the 20th century that wasn't published in Russia you couldn't read it unless you Unless it was passed around in sort of mimeographed
0: form, crazy. Mm.
1: So I know people in around in, in the time who read *Master and Margarita* in um, like fifth-generation uh, mimeographed copies. They would sort of get one chapter and then they would pass that along to a friend, and then they would get the next chapter uh, as it as it came off the mimeograph machine. That's crazy. But this 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 was. This, this happened in so many other things. I mean, to go back to quantum mechanics, there was a long period um, after, in a, and this is in America, where no one could really talk about the foundations of quantum mechanics and the foundations of the theory. So you had this development of what was called Samizdat literature, which is the sort of this underground literature where you have <clears throat> only you know, papers being mimeographed and sent around to just a few people secretly and privately because they would want to know about, you know, thoughts on the foundations of quantum mechanics because mainstream physicists not only were not interested in this, they were actively seeking to, well, crush any discussion of these matters. When was this? This was after the uh, after the Second World War, probably started around the time of Bell's Theorems, which were in the early 1960s. From 1963 to around about 1980, maybe 85, the Samizdat literature was on the foundations of quantum mechanics. It went through, it went to philosophers of quantum mechanics, it went to... Some physicists, but if physicists were known to be interested in this, it would cost them their jobs or their, their, their tenure. Why? Because the idea was one shouldn't be interested. Quantum mechanics was, as Bohr had said, as Bohr had proved, quantum mechanics was final and complete and there was nothing more to be said about it. And anyone who tried to say anything more about it and thought there should be something more to be said about it was to be deplored was to be hounded. That's why Einstein was hounded. When I first got into quantum mechanics um, as a PhD student, I was writing on relativity theory, but quantum mechanics came into it. The view was, and I heard it everywhere, Einstein is a dinosaur. He doesn't understand modern physics. Don't read him. Don't, 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 Don't talk about the things that he was interested in, because all you'll do is Put yourself in a bad light it was everywhere. That was in the early eighties, um, late seventies, early eighties. Um, was it was that attitude was current? Even I mean, for for years, physicists were ad, were uninterested in poo pooing the ideas of entanglement. Now they're all over it. Now right. it's like it's like. They <laughs> it's like they invented the damn thing. <laughs> you can't you can't stop them now. But even up to up to two thousand three four, as late as two thousand and three and four, maybe even two thousand and five. This was a very,
0: very common view. Is this so is this the combination of Einstein's early work or Einstein's late work? No, it was Einstein's work
1: of 1935. Einstein and Schrodinger published around exactly the exact same time, 1935-36, a number of papers which argued that quantum mechanics couldn't be complete, that it was that it, it lacked something, that there was something an explanatory um, something in the in its explanatory paradigm was wrong or or it, was, uh, it lacked something which needed to be added to it in order for it to make sense. Einstein had the view that um, the, the, kind of, uh, the, the distant correlations that you could get with quantum mechanics would violate special relativity, um, and, um, and, and therefore he thought that there was something wrong with the theory. Now, it turned out that that was um, a wrong view, um, that it neither violates special relativity, but it also, but it does violate ordinary ideas of, of, classical correlation exactly in the way that I described to you before, mm. um, by a factor of square root two. Now that um, was uh, proven by by Bell and uh, by the people who worked on Bell's idea. The clauser horne um, holt Shimoni uh, papers gave you the idea of this range between zero and four. Classical mechanics gives you something up to 2. Quantum mechanics extends that to 2 times square root 2. And then you've got beyond that, which is the zone of no one can get to. Now, these
0: ideas were there in the literature, but no one could talk about them. It's so funny. There's The zone that no one can get to, Hmm. it sounds like... um, uh, it, it, this is this is common thing they do in video games where it's like oh we, we'll run to the city and make it livable but then uh, if we let anyone go here then we have to like build a whole model here so we'll just like lock off this area mm. and there's this game of cat and mouse amongst um, video game designers and, and players to get to those areas that you're not supposed to be able to get to right and it's um it's uh you know like uh, simulation theory is getting more popular now right the idea that we're living inside a, a computer simulation yeah. And so uh, it, it's, it's funny to think about it from that point of view. Do you hold any weight in, these, in simulation no. theory? No. Really? No. You think this is base reality? Mm, I don't think that. I think we're wrong about what reality is like. Um,
1: I think physics gives us a better and different idea about what reality is like. Um, but the idea of the simulation, I don't buy at all. Why? Um, I don't see any uh, good uh, evidence for it. Um, I do think that what the, our ideas about what reality is like are fundamentally flawed. But I don't think that means that we're in a simulation. I mean, what we're in is reality. It's just that we aren't getting a very good or enough of a picture of what the full, as the word complexity, of what it's like. The world is built on correlations that are continually um, holding between things that we aren't able to... See, unless we do, unless we do experiments to sort of confirm it, we can't we can't get at most of what's going on in reality. Um, most of and most of what's going on, on in reality is hidden behind, as it were, this great veil of maths, which we can, you know, get some idea of, but which we um, which is still only a sort of a partial picture.
0: Do you have any? Um, do you have any like avant-garde uh, personal, personal suspicions that you're like, oh, I, I don't really have evidence for this view, but I suspect this is the case.
1: The thing that I'm working on uh, uh, is is um, the theory of um, um, what are called identical particles and what that what that means. But this is also part of a sort of a larger project on the, the interpretation of quantum mechanics. And in that interpretation, you know, it's we're not in a simulation. We're we're in we're in a world. It's just that the world that we're in is not quite does doesn't have some of the features that we think it has.
0: Um, is there any of that that'd be uh, understandable to someone without a background, or is it a bit technical? I think so. I think i
1: I've, I've I've worked out something that I think does. Uh, give something of the flavor of this. I can, I, can, I can give it to you, I think. Okay. Okay. I thought of this about 30 years ago, and I've just now re- recently thought, oh, I can make something about that. It's this. You know the, the old Zen proverb of, if a tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound? You know that one.
0: Yeah, no one hears it.
1: If, no one, if no, there's no one around to hear yeah. it, does it make a sound? Okay. Well, it's, it's, it's not really that much of a puzzle. Right. I mean, it's, an e- it's got an easy solution. Well, it, 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 you, let me give you it, the easy the solution before you blunder along into it.
0: <laughs> wait, wait, can I, can I have a shot of the easy <laughs> All solution? All right, go well, on. give you on. one, one shot. All right, go on. If you define sound as vibrations in the air, then yes. If you define sound as the um, intelligible interpretation of data by the human ear, then no. That's exactly right. Yay! Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I gave this puzzle to my son
1: and he gave exactly the same. Um, oh, yeah. good. Yeah, he's 14.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow, so you the an easy. It's balls. an easy
1: puzzle to get. All it, all it really requires is that you disambiguate what makes a sound means. Right. Does it create sound waves? Absolutely. Does it, does it create qualia in a human consciousness, which is what we call sound, the sound sensation? Well, no, because there's no one here to hear it. No On there together to to have that sensation. So there are no, okay, an easy puzzle, easy. Now I want you to think of something. We have a room. There's light in the room. There's a mirror in the room. There's no one in the room. What's the image in the mirror?
0: oh i see the trick here the trick is that unlike sound which is very reasonably behaved light is very bizarre and doesn't and acts differently if perceived okay then i'm gonna guess the image in the mirror is wait a second what from what do you mean the image in the mirror exactly so what's in the mirror For your listeners, Yitzi is <laughs> stroking his tooth. <laughs> I'm trying to figure this out. What's in the mirror? In the empty room? Okay, can I, can I just blunder a sure, bit? Sure, go for it. All right, here's some blunder. Okay, so you look at it. Let's say there's a, there's a room and there's I don't know, a chair at one end and a pot plant at the other sure. end. I look at the mirror from this... No, end no, nobody... There's no what are you, not think, looking in the mirror. No, I'm just there's I'm no one who, there's I'm giving you no different in the room. example. I'm just giving a basic example. When there is someone in the room. All right, if there's someone in the room. I'm right. Sure. So then what someone, what, so if I, if, if I sit at this angle and I look in the mirror, maybe I see the chair reflected. But if I shift around the room a bit, I might see the pop plant reflected. Absolutely. So the, what a mirror displays seems to depend on the angle at which it is viewed. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Right. Um,
1: it's, it's-, it's a selection process, in other words. You're selecting certain, um, certain rays of light that are bouncing from objects to onto the mirror and onto you when you're in the room. Mm-hmm. So you're selecting out particular, um, particular rays and getting a vision in the mirror which is determined by the selection in your position. Okay, that's what you're saying.
0: That's exactly right okay Okay. Is, 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 is that the answer or are you looking no. something beyond that no okay the what's so the the mirror is there an, the mirror is reflecting the light which hits it in all the same ways that it would anyway right and it depends what you mean by image like do you mean so, a map on a retina or do you like quailia no, no no I do you there mean? are no retinas. Okay. No one's in the room. But I mean, can you just play the same disambiguation game as last time? No. Why not? Because um,
1: the we are we're agreeing that there is still light reflecting into the mirror. There's still light bouncing around. That's why I said there yeah. are light, that's there are lights in the room. So there is still light bouncing into the mirror and off. But because it's a selection process, which hearing isn't you're selecting a particular set of rays in the mirror to be to give you the reflection that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And if you move around the room, then you're selecting different sets. Okay. Now, if there's light in the room, then all you could really say is that there are all of those in the room, in the, in the mirror, simultaneously, which means that the mirror, in some sense, could be described as just simply... Um, All of them, uh, the sort of a fullness, a plethora, a um, all all simultaneously, because there's no selection process. So it's just white, if you like. But that's not even. I mean, even that's not exactly right. It's not. It's 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 all of those things. Because what's what is in the mirror is not has no there is no one selecting any image so all images are in the mirror
0: simultaneously all images like like even a vision of the fall of rome <laughs> like genghis khan being born by a river no no okay so everything everything that can be everything what Oh, everything that is bounced that is having light bounced off in right. off the image. All of those possibilities they exist okay. in the mirror. Yep.
1: Now, in some sense, that's true if someone is if there's one person in the room or two person right. people in the room. As one. Is all I'm seeing Yeah, You're seeing one particular point of view. Yes. Someone is seeing a different point of view. There are a third person may see a different point of view. You're seeing a different image in the mirror. But all those images exist in the mirror. Yep. There's no puzzle about that. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing. Um, there's nothing uh, that one could s- to say is sort of mystical or it's or it's supernatural about this. It's not even really a disambiguation matter. It's just a selection process. Okay. Okay. Well, in some ways, quantum mechanics is a bit like that. When you are what we call the measurement problem in quantum mechanics is really a sort of selection process because you're selecting. Um, a, particular res- a particular way of seeing a particular quantum system. But what the quantum system is in itself is something which is more like the, that, that plethora. All of those things are in there. All of those possibilities are there. When, it, when you make a selection, you see something in particular, you see a particular aspect, but they're all there. They're all there in potential, And so what the quantum system is, is really just a vast system of potentialities in which when you make measurements, you, you get one particular result. And that is, it's a sort of a metaphor, but it's a key to how one can have this kind of selection process, which doesn't involve consciousness. It's not it's not as though consciousness has any role to play here. It's that if one is observing something which is it has all of this it so of well, full potential inside it, and one has to and one is making a selection, then one gets one particular result. And you think that's at the heart of, of, of It's a way of understanding how quantum mechanics works without invoking idiotic ideas <laughs> of consciousness. <laughs> collapsing the wave packet or ideas
0: that that involved obvious um, mystifications and, and I, I mean I'm, I'm not an expert on this but does it does it have like does it wrap everything up neatly
1: it seems to it's the, the problem is then um, well I think there are several problems but one problem is why do we I mean, you could look. the the bigger The big problem with quantum mechanics in the measurement problem is expressed in Schrödinger's cat, and people sort of say, "Well, quantum mechanics predicts it's a sort of superposition of alive and a dead cat," and yet we clearly perceive either one or the other. And I I agree. We see one or the other. Right. I, I think that this is a situation where we it's simply not in the superposition that we believe it is in quantum mechanics. It's already collapsed because. There is a sort of a decoherence effect from the environment that will have an effect on the, on some quantum systems, which will not allow superpositions as it were to grow to macroscopic size. But other there are other circumstances where superpositions do get to be macroscopic and where the quantum effects do uh, manifest. Multiply them. upwards.
0: Hmm?
1: Multiply upwards. Exactly, multiply right. upwards. So in those situations, there is a selection effect. And how that selection effect works is um, in, in along the sort of the same lines as the as the mirror analogy. That's there is this potentiality that is there, and your when you sort of make a measurement, you are simply seeing one aspect of that potentiality. If you were to measure it again in the same way, you would see the same thing, and that is what is the normal argument for assuming that there is a wave packet collapse, but I don't see that there is anything of that kind. There are decoherence collapses, but there is no consciousness collapsing anything. So it's a sort of, this gives a picture of quantum mechanics which is not, um, which doesn't buy into mysterious consciousness affecting um, processes in the same kind of way, which has always been a sort of just a piece of silliness. It's just that it's a silliness that people bind into. Nor does it mean uh, that there is any kind of multiple worlds that the world splits into as a result of measurement. The world doesn't split; it stays. The world stays. Yeah, there's no splitting into multiple worlds.
0: Oh, that's good. I was, I was. Uh, that that one always did my head in. The idea that like at every possible moment of juncture, infinite universes are being created out of the. Possibilities. Yeah,
1: physicists and philosophers used to uh, ridicule that idea. Rather, it didn't get a very um, uh, a lot of followers for a long time. But suddenly, as a result of um, as a result of sort of cosmological ideas and string theory ideas, the physicists are buying into it. I think they're being led down the car- down the garden path on this.
0: Fair. We're almost out of time, but there is well, that's a great shame.
1: <laughs> Terrible shame If only we had been more, um, I don't know,
0: organised <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, these things happen Indeed they do um, No, I, I, we, we've passed an hour on the track already <laughs> um, But I wanted to ask you about um, one, one, more, one more thing before we wrap up Which is, um, do you have strong opinions on Xenophon? No No? No, All right. no. <laughs> Why? Uh, because I, I figure, like, um, he's he's the other one of Socrates' students that we know about. And yeah. he has this, like, really impressive military career, and he seems to go off and have a lot of adventures as well as studying philosophy. I said Socrates. As it's Socrates. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Well, oh, yeah. Socrates was uh, marching
1: along, um, you know, as, as Plato describes him in the symposium, he was marching along and singing songs. And um you know, with this band of Athenians. Um he was a an enthusiastic soldier.
0: Really? Oh yeah. Okay. Fair but but like the story of the ten thousand, that's crazy. Eh, well. Like like Xenophon took a mercenary group to Persia to fight for the fight for the well in the civil war, won his side of the battle, but then like the, the, the guy they were trying to get installed on in the throne died. So they were just like, Well, we're there's nothing left for us to do here. And so they fought their way all the way back to Greece. That's amazing. You don't find that amazing? It is amazing, though. I feel like that's, that's the sort of thing like, that would, it, maybe he learned things that were profound that come through in his discussions with, in, in Socrates Academy. And I figured if anyone would have picked those up, it would have been you.
1: You know, the idea of being a soldier and a philosopher wasn't all that surprising back then. You could do both. Now it seems ridiculous. Now I, d- I doubt if there are very many philosophers who started off as soldiers. Fair. Um, and it's sort of an it's an unfortunate thing, you know, because I think a lot of philosophers could do with dying in battle.
0: Fantastic. <laughs> 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 do. All right. Well, I guess uh, I guess we have an old precedent for hell's nerds. Then. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Dr. Heathcote, it's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure. This is General Ike building Jerusalem.